invite you to open your Bibles or turn on your devices to Luke chapter 20. We're about to enter into a really a remarkable scene that takes place, imagine, in front of a very large crowd. One we could envision as a long-awaited heavyweight bout. I say that as someone who does not watch boxing. I do, however, have a childhood memory. As a boy growing up in the 80s, it was hard not to be captivated by the Rocky movies. Remember Sylvester Stallone, who played this fighter from the streets of Philadelphia? I remember the very first Rocky movie I saw with a friend, I believe I was age 11, Rocky IV. Who remembers Rocky IV? I see a few hands. In that movie, remember the bad guy? It's Drago. He is this huge, powerful Russian. It's like somebody took an air pump to him and just swelled up every single muscle on his body. But Drago is not filled with hot air. In fact, they have this scene where they show Drago punching this machine, this punching bag on a machine, and he punches it. And the machine records his punch at over 2,000 pounds per square inch. That would be the equivalent of me taking a 250-pound weight and dropping it on you. His trainer, I remember after they show this statistic, his trainer remarks with a smile as Drago sits there, whatever he hits, he destroys. Which sadly turns out to be true if you remember the beginning of the movie. Rocky's friend Apollo fights Drago. Apollo, he fights him in the ring. And Drago pounds him so badly that he ends up dying of his injuries. Apollos dies. And Drago, he's not disturbed in the least. He's like, well, if he dies, he dies. He's a bad guy. So Rocky decides he has to go toe-to-toe with Drago. And the movie, it's just building up to this great heavyweight bout at the end between Rocky and Drago. You have Rocky. He's off in the remote wilderness, busy training in a cabin. And you have Drago, who has home court advantage with all the technology, the machines, and also the drugs, waiting in the capital city. And have no doubt, Drago is looking forward to destroying Rocky. That's where we're really at in Luke. The religious leaders, the powerful religious leaders, have been wanting to destroy Jesus, and it's been mounting and building. In the last three years, this young upstart rabbi has taken Israel by storm. Jesus of Nazareth, he's gained all kinds of attention with his teachings, with his miracles. And last week, what happened? Jesus entered the temple and made his way straight to the temple, or entered the capital, entered the capital and made his way straight to the temple. You remember what happened when he got there? He wasted no time. Jesus cleaned house. Chapter 19 ended with Jesus in the temple. He's just cleaned house, and now the crowd is hanging on his every word. And Jesus' opponents are watching and waiting, and Luke noted they want to destroy him. Welcome to Luke 20. Are you ready to rumble? Luke 20, now hear the words of our God. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or... Who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, 
If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this, your word. May we receive it as what it really is, the word of our Lord. And may we be changed that we may respond in faith, hope, and love and in obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we just sang a song. There is a fountain filled with blood. A hymn that actually appears in fewer and fewer hymnals. I was looking at the statistics. It's on fewer and fewer church playlists today because of the controversial language. The graphic pictures of being bathed in blood. Many do not think that this is a sensible song to sing in our Be Kind Day. Actually, it's been controversial from the get-go, as 200 years ago there are failed attempts to alter its language. Let me ask this. Does anybody know who wrote it? Who wrote it, Mike? William Cowper. Cowper. Anybody know the condition of William Cowper when he wrote it? William Cowper was an Englishman who had a career in the House of Lords ahead of him. But he suffered from a major panic attack that spiraled into a great and deep and dark depression. Cowper was in and out of hospitals most of his life. Cowper spent most of his life fighting the darkness and even attempted suicide three times. He credited the Lord for preventing him from carrying it through on it. You see, when he was in the depths, feeling worthless, unlovable, a failure, like life is just so hard, he remembered something graphic, something actually very sensible. What was it? 
the precious blood of Jesus that was spilled over him and had washed him clean. And he was comforted that this blood would never lose its power. Did you hear that? The power of the blood. When he was feeling despair, did you hear that last line? He could write of Jesus' power to save. He wrote this when he was in one of his most depressed states. Friends, it was impressed on me as I was visiting our community's Ground Zero in the last week. This graphic gospel, these extreme measures are what our neighbors need, what they need to hear. The gospel is not that you are good and everything is all right in the world. I say that because too often that's our profession and I'll be the first one to raise my hand. How are you doing, Joel? What do I say? Oh, I'm good. Oh, and you're good too? That's wonderful. Everyone's good. We're all good. Isn't that wonderful? No, we're not always good. That's why every single week we confess our sins, we confess our shame, our helplessness, living in a broken world. My attitude is bad. I keep doing what I know is wrong and I don't want to. My body isn't what I want it to be. My home life, it's a mess. How am I doing? I'm over a cliff hanging on by my fingernails sometimes. You know anybody, if they're honest with you, who might actually say they're in that dire straits? Friends, what is our answer to that? Oh, I'm so sorry you're hanging on by a thread. Here's what you need to do. Think more positively. Oh, time heals all wounds. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, we dare not treat people's wounds lightly. We can't heal their wounds lightly. Not when we have a better answer, a real solution. When someone comes up to us and asks us for help, what should our answer be? Well, we should start with, friend, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you for being honest with me. Let me be honest back. Friend, maybe not today, but there's lots of times I feel rotten too. But I've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Friend, I am weak like you, but I have a powerful Savior. Friends, things seem really dark right now. Let me tell you about the light of the world. Friend, have you heard of the Father God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that no one who believes in him might perish, but will have everlasting life, escape this dark age. Friends, this is the gospel. It's why we preach it every single Sunday at Heart City Church. And it's what we find our Lord Jesus doing in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. I think this is an amazing scene. You have Jesus, who is the gospel, preaching the gospel. Preaching it in the very place where these people had just brought their Passover lambs, thousands of them, to be slaughtered. Can you imagine coming and watching a lamb being slaughtered, all its blood being poured out, so that your sins, your guilt, your shame could be covered for? Year after year, after year. But now Jesus, he's arrived and he's saying, I'm bringing an end to all that. Jesus is preaching about himself. He's saying, I've come to fulfill Zechariah 13.1. We read this last week. To become that fountain opened up for Israel. I've come to cleanse you from sin and uncleanness, 
so you can have peace with God. Peace with God. Can you imagine these people who are hearing this new message? These weary souls who are finding hope, relief, comfort, grace, peace with God after all they've done. Something that these try-harder religious leaders can't give them and haven't been giving them. And Jesus had gotten these guys' attention, demonstrating he knew how to clean literally. Jesus rode into the temple, rode into the capital city, went right to the temple, and he cleaned house. He drove off those who were profiting from all the animal sacrifices. This is a big money-making thing going on in the temple. They're pushing out the Gentiles, people who wanted to come and pray. Jesus came and he, he was like Rocky. He came out swinging in chapter 19. And these leaders, they must have been caught completely off guard because they don't do anything about it. But in Luke 20, Jesus has come back. He's in the ring again. This is round two. They see him preaching and they see it. And I can be honest, when I was taking the scene, I find myself wanting to get a little bit charismatic. I know Presbyterians don't tend to do that. And by that, I mean, I kind of wanted to jump up and start shouting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If I had been in that crowd, I think I might well have been. Jesus is showing himself to be the people's champion. Unintimidated by the powerful leaders of religious orthodoxy on their home turf, he's won over the heart of the crowd, like in that Rocky movie, if you've watched it. There's this overmatched fighter from Philadelphia, and suddenly the Russian crowd starts shouting, Rocky, Rocky. But now, in walks these heavyweights. I want us to see that the crowd, they would have parted for these guys. These guys, they're swelled up, not physically. They might have fat heads, right? They're all intellectual. They have pedigree. These are guys who have pure bloodlines from the line of Levi. They're educated at the best schools. They have all the credentials. You see them walking in in their long robes. The crowd just parts. They're ready now. They're surprised in round one. They've had time to put their heads together and confront Jesus with this question they think is going to devastate him. You see, this isn't a question they're expecting an answer to. These are fighting words meant to intimidate. They come at Jesus and they're ready to knock him down. Jesus, you carpenter from Nazareth, what authority do you ride into Jerusalem like you're a king? Walk into the temple like you own the place, making a mess of everything. Oh, and you're standing here like you've been ordained to office. Where's your credentials, Jesus? Who gave you authority here? Now, this isn't the first time they've questioned Jesus' authority. Way back in Luke 5, they wondered about Jesus' authority to forgive the sins of the paralytic man. Remember, lowered in through the roof? You remember Jesus' response? Jesus answered, Why do you question in your hearts? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, and he turns to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus showed his authority by using his power, his supernatural power, to heal a paralyzed man, left them all speechless. But Jesus does not resort to supernatural power here to prove his authority. He could have done that, right? Jesus uses the power of wisdom. He answers their question with a question. He answered them, I will ask, also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven 
or from man? So why does Jesus answer their question with a question? Well, the first thing, this is what rabbis do. You could go up, if you saw a rabbi today, you go up and say, so why do all you rabbis ask, answer questions with questions? And they might say something like this. How else would you want us to respond to a question? Yeah. Yes, they love to ask questions. But I think more importantly here, Jesus is now working to expose their hearts. Hearts that do not want to submit to his God-given authority. Do you remember the parable in the last chapter about those who sent a delegation? We do not want this man to rule over us. Friends, Jesus wants to reveal what lies underneath all the resistance to him and to the gospel. And you know people out there. Jesus is showing forth a heart that does not want to submit to his authority. And he does it with a question, a wisdom question. A question so brilliant, he sends these guys off. They have to go huddle up. They have to form a committee now to discuss what we're going to do about this. Verse 5, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? If we say from man, all the people here, big crowd, will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. <laughs> I imagine this huddle must have been quite a funny scene. You know, for us anyways. You know, so who is the bonehead who thought up this question to get his authority? You know, it was Phil. All right, first motion on the table. Phil is off the question committee. Get him out of here. Everything else. Now, I know Luke doesn't include that. But he does want us to see the irrationality of unbelief. Notice they're not interested in the truth. They only want a response that will serve their interests. Notice the question Jesus asks about John's ministry is not even on the table. They don't even look at that. They don't consider that. They are spineless self-preservationists. The committee's sole concern here, the reason they've got together, is to protect their status. See, if they admit John's ministry is from God, well, they have to accept Jesus' authority because John declared Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one. He said he was the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. If they admit John was right, then Jesus has authority and they lose their status as top dogs in the temple. If they reject John, who the people hold to be a prophet, many of them in droves came out and were baptized by him. And John was willing to lose his life for what he believed. Great respect for John. If they reject John, well, <laughs> this crowd's going to turn on them. They think they're going to get stoned. They'll lose their lives. So these guys are racking their brains like, oh no, what are we going to do about this? And then Phil's thought and sent off, remember him? He's like, hey guys, I got a thought. Let's become agnostics. Let's tell Jesus we don't know. And suddenly Phil's back on the committee. You know, they're like, yeah, all right, Phil, great idea. And they're back in business. So they walk up to Jesus. You see him with a smile and they announce verse seven. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you see the double-mindedness? And Jesus doesn't have time for double-mindedness that pleads ignorance. Jesus knows this is not an intellectual problem, a problem of lack of information. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. Hearts that hate him as their Lord and would prefer to be fools in their folly rather than humble servants. See, friends, there is all the difference in the world between a soul truly searching for answers 
and one that chooses ignorance out of unwillingness to accept Jesus' authority. I think there's an important lesson for us to learn as believers here. Jesus is showing us that we need wisdom in our witness to the world. An unbeliever may come up to you, and we talked about the horror in Ukraine, or maybe a personal tragedy. Maybe they see what's happened in Florida last week. And they may come up and ask you this question. Why did God not stop this? Why did God not enter into this situation? How could he let this happen? And you feel the attack right then, don't you? Friends, you don't need to try and defend God. <laughs> try to come up with an intellectual answer. Perhaps a question is a wiser strategy. Dear friend, I've witnessed your life. You've lived all your days in rebellion against God. You've lived your life for your pleasures. You've never once searched for God. So I have a question. Why have you never complained that God did not stop you? Or enter into your situation? We need to learn how to be wise as serpents. Proverbs 26, 3 and 4. Listen to this. They read, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. At first glance, this contradiction is really confusing, right? Am I supposed to answer the fool or not? And Jesus shows us it depends on what sort of fool you're talking to. Because he begins by refusing to answer, right? Lest he become like them himself. There are times when the person who engages you is not interested in truth, and you need to discern that. And now, lest they be wise in their own eyes, he answers them with a parable that they cannot miss the point of. Verse 9, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Notice, for they perceived that the parable that he had told, that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. These religious leaders understand that the parable is directed at them. They're not going to be wise in their own eyes. And now they want more than ever to take Jesus out. But they can't for fear of the crowd. <laughs> This is kind of like that scene in Gladiator 
when em- Emperor Commodus, he comes out into the arena, you know, the most powerful man, and he walks out there, and he tells the winner to remove his helmet. What does he find? He's facing his old enemy, Maximus. And he wants to order his death at that very hour. But the crowd is shouting, live, 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 because they all love Maximus. He's kind of stuck, isn't he? And so he just kind of fakes a smile and gives them the thumbs up. That's where these guys are. These guys are going to be crushed. They can't win this fight. Jesus just made that clear. The parable is actually based on Isaiah 5. It's describing Israel's history. The man represents God the Father. The tenants are Israel's religious leaders. They were supposed to lead Israel's peoples in lives of repentance and praise to God. This would produce fruit. You notice our call from Hosea earlier that Dave read. Return to the Lord and take words. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. John the Baptist, or baptizer, I don't want to give him to the Baptist. It's actually baptizer in the Greek. John the baptizer said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you realize whenever you come to God and you say, I blew it, I messed up. God, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Help me and start living a different life. At that moment, the moment you confess, you're beginning to bear fruit. And when you begin to live a new way, your life is then demonstrating that fruit of repentance. When God sends his servant to collect the fruit, this tenant, the tenants, they beat this guy and send him away with nothing. These were the prophets that God would send. Now, imagine being in the crowd and you're hearing this story. This would be unthinkable. These tenants, they're not only not doing their job, they're given this free land. They're not doing their job. But then they beat the one fellow who is doing his job and send him back with nothing. So God sends another. <laughs> That's pretty merciful, don't you think? If this is your property and people that you put there refuse to work and then they beat your guy who goes there to get the rent or whatever, would you give this guy another shot? Would you give these people another shot? Oh, maybe they got mixed up by the credentials. Maybe that's what happened, right? <laughs> and they do the same thing. And they even shame the next guy. It gets worse and worse and worse. But God is still merciful. Gives them another chance. Actually, the last guy, the Greek word here is traumatizo. They traumatize this guy. They cast him out. This may be John the Baptist who got killed. Everyone knows Jesus is talking about the prophets who were sent to Israel again and again and again. They were bringing God's message of salvation. And the religious leaders, these tenants, refused to show the people their sin and their need of salvation. They prefer to keep their top dog status. And they prefer not to have any authority over themselves. It's amazing, after all these failed attempts, the father decides a different tactic He says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect my son. At this point, does anybody think that God's out of his mind? Why would he send the son that he loves to these rebels? Did he really think that Israel's leaders were going to respect him? The answer is no. See, the point of the story 
is not to show God as an irrational owner, but it's rather to expose the irrationality of the human heart that rebels against rightful authority, that would go so far as to think they could take the inheritance by killing the son. Notice here, there's no failure to recognize his authority. His credentials, they know his credentials. These tenants cannot claim agnosticism. We don't know who this is. Do you see Jesus' point? They make this plan precisely when they do recognize who he is. Friends, when you share the gospel, everyone recognizes who Jesus is. Everyone. But they don't want him to reign far too often. And Jesus asks this crowd, What then do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? The answer, he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now this crowd is absolutely horrified by this. They say, Megnoito. It's an expression only ever used by Paul. It's a strong expression saying, May it never be. God forbid this happen. And Jesus looks directly at them. And he says, Oh yes, it will. And he quotes Psalm 118 to them. And he asks them a question. Jesus leaves no doubt that he is the cornerstone upon which this building God has going to construct. He's the block upon which everything else is going to be built. He's going to be rejected by the builders. They're going to send him to the cross. But his rejection, his crushing will be temporary. It may look like Drago is winning. Mm-mm. No. You'll think that Jesus is down for the count after they put him in the tomb. But Jesus is going to rise again from the dead and they will be the ones that get crushed. They actually were in 70 AD. And we've profited from this. We're not, none of us here, any of us ethnically Jews? No. It's given to another. We've been given an opportunity here to reach, to take a hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to see in our own hearts, though, there's often a resistance to his authority. These religious leaders, they understand exactly what this parable means. Maybe they don't get all of it, but they understand enough that they're getting at the problem of the authority that they don't like. And friends, if you reject Jesus' authority, anyone who rejects Jesus' authority, you're choosing to destroy yourself. I want to make two closing applications. First, we live in a day where it's fashionable, admirable to resist authority. You see the stickers, don't you? Resist authority to defy it. And I think there are times we should resist bad authority, but authority is not bad in and of itself. All authority, whether we like it or not, has been established by God. Romans 13. I've been appalled at some of the things I see Christians say about our nation's leaders. Read Daniel 2, where he can praise a pagan king who has destroyed his people. Even as he continues to obey God and not fear men, he can still praise an ungodly leader. We as Christians are called to model what it looks like to live under authority. We're called to model that. And it all starts with the authority of Scripture, God's Word. We're called to believe it and obey it 
in order to understand, not the other way around. We don't get to faith by saying, prove it to us and then we'll believe. That's not how faith works. We believe in order to understand. You'll never understand in order to believe. It doesn't work that way. Children, you're called to obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So this week's response to your folks is actually your response to King Jesus. When your parents tell you to do something or not to do something, guess what? That's King Jesus showing up at your door. You realize that? So if you say to mom or dad or grandma, my way, I want what I want. You're saying to to Jesus, who gave you the authority to rule over me? You don't want to say that to Jesus because Jesus might end up tipping the tables and rearranging your furniture. He's been known to do that. And then a closing note for all of us about the times we're going to be attacked as Christians. Our culture is moving further and further away. And it's the saddest thing in the world that some folks hate Jesus. Some folks hate Jesus. Even though Jesus never ever did anything to deserve their hate. So remember this scene when you're being attacked for your faith. And tell your Heavenly Father, this hurts. And ask you for the wisdom you need that you lack. Incidentally, we just happen to be preaching on this in James tonight. Your Heavenly Father graciously gives wisdom to all who ask without reproach. Your Heavenly Father gave you wisdom in a person, Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom from God. And the cross is the way he shows that wisdom. So as you feel those blows, as you feel people pressing in on you, remember that your opponent is not crushing you. That's something to keep in mind. They cannot crush you because you've been united to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the attack that they're bringing on you that they think is bringing you down is actually having the opposite effect and one you can rejoice in. It is sanctifying you, producing steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, you're going to be the opposite of crushed. You're going to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, like our Lord Jesus Christ, and for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, worthy are you to receive all honor and glory and power, for you have created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. And you are before all things, and in you all things hold together. And we give you thanks and praise for sending our Lord Jesus, who has demonstrated true authority, true wisdom, and also amazing grace. That we who are rebels, that we might be saved, that we might be turned. We ask and pray, Father, that you will uh, help us to see the authority that you set over us and to live in such a way that we model before a watching world what it means to live as those under authority, under your authority. And we ask and pray that you'll give us wisdom to know when we are fearing men and so that we may instead fear you. We ask and pray that you'll give us the grace of the Holy Spirit that we might in fact know how to answer everyone who comes to us and give us that wisdom from above that is first pure, then peaceable, that's gentle, that's open to reason, that is full of mercy and good fruits, that's impartial and sincere, that we might sow a harvest of righteousness and peace. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.